Before I begin our message this morning, I've asked uh, Patty Chan to read this morning's scripture verses, a main text for us. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Patty. Well, this week has been a week of ups and downs for me. And uh, er, uh, earlier last weekend, uh, I had uh, a ball hit me in the eye when I was playing basketball. So last week, uh, my left eye looked like I was in a barroom fight. And I was just praying and, and, and hoping that by this weekend, my eye would would recover and thankfully thank god it did because it would look like i was a big old red eye here and uh so my week didn't start off really well it, it's i don't know if you've ever had that where you can't see really out of one eye and it's just irritating and uh, so that was a rough beginning to my week but then on monday when i woke up on fourth of july when there was independence day it was independence day for kd so that was good news for the Warriors to have Kevin Durant come. And so that was an up part of my week. So after getting my eye hit uh, playing basketball and hearing that, that was a really good news for me to hear on Monday. But then as the week progressed, it, we, if you were anywhere close to the Internet or to the news, the reports of the things that are happening in our country were very saddening and very terrible things that on whichever side you're on, on the issues, it was something hard to hear. Where again, we find two more um, black African-American males' lives lost in their interactions with police. And then on Thursday, apparently with a retaliatory kind of reaction to those, those shootings, we have five police officers killed in Dallas. And then subsequently, there are protests, and I don't know if you've been around in the Bay Area, freeways have been closed down because of the protests over these shootings. And it's sad. It really is sad to be in our country during this time. Well, before I, I begin our message, I just want to pray for us as we seek God together and find his counsel and his peace during these times. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, if ever we needed you more, it is during these times. And these times are hard. We are mourning. We are lamenting. We are crying for you, Lord. Lives were lost. And one of the things that you hold valuable is the sanctity of life. And many were lost this week, whether it's through uh, shootings, uh, retaliatory shootings, even with the, the um, suicidal bombings in the name of religion. The people lost, these are husbands, fathers, sons, mothers, wives, daughters, and so we all mourn for their lives now, and we ask for your peace during these times, for our world is in trouble. We ask for your peace to roam this land, to unite us, to comfort us, and bring us wisdom. Lord, as we come together this morning, as I pray each week, may you open our eyes to see what you want us to see, open our ears to hear what you want us to hear, 
Open our minds to know what you want us to know. But most importantly, open our hearts to feel what you want us to feel. So I thank this in Jesus' name. Amen. An American uh, pastor who's known as the father of modern, modern revivalism in America, Charles Finney, wrote this. The church must take right ground in regards to politics. God will bless or curse the nation according to the political course Christians take. Again, I read this. The church must take right ground in regards to politics. God will bless or curse the nation according to the political course Christians take. So according to Charles Finney here, he's saying that the church has a responsibility, a God-given responsibility in politics. That how Christians vote, how Christians think, how Christians act has a direct effect as to the blessing or the cursing of our nation. That's a heavy responsibility if we really take that to heart. And it happens to be 2016, and this is a presidential year. It's a presidential election year. And again, we get, as citizens of the United States, we get a choice of picking who will lead our country. And, and, and I, I'm sure a lot of you have already made up your minds. You know who you're going to be voting for, and apparently uh, the, the nominees for each party apparently have been selected. And my place here is not to change your mind. If you've already made a decision of who you're going to vote for, God bless you. Uh, If you haven't made a decision, and maybe what I'm going to be saying today will be helpful in guiding you. But the most important thing I, I want you to get out of my message today is not that I tell you who to vote for, which I won't, but that you do it with due diligence, whoever you choose. Because... According to Charles Finney, this is a really big responsibility that we have. And so, however you vote, whoever you choose as your leaders, according to, to Scripture and to other leaders that we respect, we have a great responsibility in doing that. My title is WWJD in the presidential election for my message today. Uh, those of you not familiar with WWJD, it is what would Jesus do? And, and that's a hard thing for me as a fallen person myself, a broken vessel, someone who's very imperfect, who is uh, biased and, and prejudiced in, in whatever ways in my own uh, fallen state. So my best ability, I'm going to try to give you counsel this morning, but I'm sure there are some things that a lot of you will disagree with. And I hope that's okay. And under the, the, the mercy and grace of God that you will give to me, that if there are some issues that I say or things that you disagree with, I'm, I'm open to, to you starting a dialogue with me. You know, email me, call me, come up to me, and just point those things out. Because at least we'll be digging together into the issues. And, and, and that's my challenge for all of us is don't vote out of tradition. Don't choose leaders out of a particular loyalty. Do the homework. Really study the issues and to know them. And just like Pastor Wayne was saying last week, you know, about different religions, how can you say something negative about something unless you really studied it? And the same thing here. The issues that confront our country, the candidates that are involved, don't listen just automatically to what others say. But do the homework and through your own conscience, through what you feel God is speaking to you, choose wisely. There is no political party that is Christian. So I want to make that known. In my opinion, there is no political party that is Christian. So as a Christian, you can't vote for a particular party because you think they're Christian. It it doesn't work that way. And so don't, don't... Um, be fooled by that. Vote, as I said, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Vote as you hear God tell you to do. And, you know, every election, you know, our our mailboxes get filled with a lot of these brochures and pamphlets from different interest groups and, and, and telling us who to vote for, right? 
And even the, the state of California, one of the jobs of the Secretary of State, who is the voter, head of the voter registration, is supposed to give us information about elections, whether it's about uh, referendums or propositions or the candidates. So it's a voter's guide. Well, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, we also have a voter guide, and it's called the Bible. The scripture is clear about many things in life and why not how to choose people to, to lead us. So in my message, I'm going to be going through a lot of stuff. So, you know, I only have about 30 minutes, politics, presidential elections. This is complex, and it's not an easy topic to cover. So I'm th I thank Pastor Andrew for giving it to me. <laughs> uh, so with this topic, I'm going to go through just kind of real quick about four things. If you're going to remember anything, it's kind of like a guide. If you look at my notes, there's just a lot of scripture verses. I'm not going to go into detail with a lot of the scripture verses. I'm encouraging you to go study it yourself later. Okay. I'm going to highlight them, but I'm going to move through basically four areas. First, I'm going to establish some fundamental Things the Bible say about us as Christians, how to be good citizens. What are we to do as citizens of a particular country that we live in? Second thing, I'm going to go into some basic biblical mandates that is on God's, God's heart that should also be as on our heart. So whenever we look at issues that confront us in the world, do these align up with the stand that God tends to make on these issues? Then I'm going to talk about some practical things about how to evaluate candidates that we want to choose as our leaders. And then I'll finish with a message of hope in the midst of all this kind of craziness. So that's my general outline there. Just these four areas. I'm going to go some fundamentals about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to, to follow God's mandates from the Bible about certain issues, what it means to how to choose practically our leaders, and then finishing with a message of hope. So what are Christians to do as Christians? Well, this comes from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 14. Many of you are familiar with this. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus giving his first sermon, and he outlines that we shall be salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Those are two things that all Christians are called to be, salt and light. Salt is known as a preserver. It's a flavor enhancer. It's a, 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 a purity item which helps purify things. And so as people of salt, that's what we are to do in the world. Not just in one area of our lives, but in all areas of our lives. And that includes politics. So if we are to be salt, we are then in some ways to preserve things. We are to enhance things. How our lives are to enhance other people's lives, that is important as being salt. And the most important characteristic of salt is that salt makes us thirsty. And when we are salt to other people, we make them thirsty. And we make them thirsty for something that they need. And that is the living water of Jesus Christ. The second thing that Jesus encourages being salt, we're also to be light. And in times like these, which seem to be so dark, light is important. And then our purpose as Christians to be lights to the world, we are to show the world the true light. And that's Jesus Christ. So that's the main thing that, that Jesus emphasizes in that, in that Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light, and that's our calling. So if we are to live in this country, we are to be also salt and light. The next thing we see is in from 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15, and that essentially means that as citizens, we should be peaceful and law-abiding. We heard a little bit of that in Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 7, but it's also repeated in 1 Peter 2. Verses 13 to 15, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted by men, whether it be the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So here, the, the scriptures are, are, are telling us to submit to, to the governmental leaders. And here it says kings and governors who rule over us. So we are to submit means to obey them, to, to follow them, to, to be at peace with them. And living peacefully and law-abiding, it, it, we do this by our, our actions. The scripture there in verse 15 says that, that we will be doing good. That by doing good is a behavior is that we represent to the world, even if we may be persecuted. Because the context here is that the Christians in the early church were being persecuted. And they were being blamed for, for certain, certain uh, ills of how they behaved. And to counter that, Peter is telling them, act even better. Be good people. So no one would have any um, means of criticizing you. So as Christians, we have a responsibility in our, in our uh, communities in our country to live uh, as much as possible abiding all the laws and exhibiting good behavior. The next basic thing is that we are told in Romans 13 verse 7 to honor our government leaders. To honor our government leaders. And whatever that means to you, that's what we're supposed to do. And we're not only just supposed to honor them, but in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 3, we are told to pray for them. The Apostle Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Everyone. There's no, no exclusivity there. It means everybody. Everybody included in our culture, in our communities, should be prayed for. No matter what religion, no matter what color skin, no matter what economic class you're in, we're supposed to pray for everyone. And it says specifically for kings and all those in authority, our government leaders. So not only are we to honor them, we are also to pray for them. Now, how many of you actually do that? Take time in your daily prayers to pray for our government leaders, for our president, for our senators, our governors, mayors. Because according to the scripture there, in verse 3, it says, this is good, and it pleases God, our Savior. So if we are to be faithful and obedient to the instructions of God, it says there, it pleases God when we pray for our leaders. Don't you want to do that? I want to. So that's what we should do certain times of our our daily routine, or maybe sometime during our week, pray for our leaders. A fourth thing, we as Christians are to faithfully pay our taxes. It says that clearly in Romans thirteen seven, pay taxes. Give to those who you owe revenue, revenue. And in Matthew twenty two twenty one, this one's the one that's quoted often, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the context there is that the Jewish people wanted a revolution. They wanted a rebellion against the Roman occupiers. They wanted any kind of excuse to not have to follow the law or the rules of, of the dominating uh, Roman Empire. And they're asking Jesus, hey, is it okay for us not to pay taxes? And Jesus says, no. On those coins that you have, whose face is on it? It's Caesar's. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Jesus is encouraging not to rebel in a way to withhold your taxes, but to pay what you do owe. Because the government is put there in many ways to take care of us, to pay for certain services that, that a lot of us cannot do on our own. So as Christians, we are to faithfully pay our taxes. And I know begrudgingly a lot of you do, but it's something that God wants us to do. A fifth thing, to be a citizen and a Christian means to work for the highest good of all people. Galatians 6 verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
According to this, there is uh, an instruction here just to, to do good, just be good people, and, and not just in word, but to do it in deed. And then finally, promote godly principles in politics and government, for example, through our own voting. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in power, they groan. I'll read it again. When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in power, they groan. So my question to you, are you rejoicing now or are you groaning? The scripture is telling us that when godly people are in charge of our nation, then there is rejoicing. When there are wicked people in charge, the nation is groaning. Something to to ponder, something to remember from what the scripture is telling us. So there, I kind of quickly went through some things that are expectations of of Christians as citizens, some fundamental uh, attributes. And so I'm going to move now to to what the Bible says about certain biblical mandates that that tend to be thematic throughout the scripture. And the first one is is uh, comforting or confronting sin and moral decay. I mean, that's kind of an obvious thing. I mean, if, if God is holy and God is, is perfect and pure, as people, we, we, as his people, we represent that. That we are not evil, but we are to represent good. And so anything that is evil or what we call sin or anything that causes moral decay is something that we as a people, as God's people, should be combating and, 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 and withstanding against. Isaiah uh, 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Essentially, the scripture is when people are twisting things around, that's not a good thing. Proverbs 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So as God's people, we uh, encourage, we want to support, we want to build into our lives and and our communities a righteousness. Because according to Proverbs 14, verse 34, sin is a disgrace to the people. And remember what I said uh, earlier, what Charles Finney says, as Christians go, the nation goes. The second mandated issue from the Bible is speaking out for innocent life, and that includes those who are unborn. And, and Proverbs 31, verse 8 says this, Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute, and Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16, and Isaiah 44, to emphasize the same thing, that God knows us even before we're born, that he knows us in the wombs of our mother. So if you combine those, this brings up the issue of this, the sanctity of life, that all life is, is valuable in God's eyes. So he's, he laments and he, he is saddened when there is murder and killing of human life in all states, whether it's in the womb or not in the womb. That's the issue that is clear in the scriptures of the sanctity of life and the importance for Christians to to know that and be able to support, protect, the life of the innocent. And the third main theme that I think you can find in the Bible is defending the poor and oppressed. I mean, that's, that's really a no-brainer. I mean, the, 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 the whole issue of Jesus coming was essentially to come from to those who have been marginalized, disenfranchised, those who are without power to, to give uh, power to the have-nots, from the haves. That's a clear 
theme found throughout the scripture. Isaiah 10, verse 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Clear mandate from God of social justice, of protecting the orphans, the widows, and the poor. And so those, one again, foundational things of battling moral decay, having a voice and protection of the innocent and the unborn. And the third, third area is defending the poor and oppressed, and essentially social justice. Those are biblical mandates. And those keep those in mind that as followers of Jesus Christ, those are three issues that we must evaluate our world and see if we are actually contributing to it, to, to building those mandates up, or we are breaking them down. And so when we vote, we should evaluate the candidates on how they stand on those biblical mandates. And I said earlier, there is no Christian party that, there there is no Christian party. And there is no candidate that's going to be perfect on all these issues. And there lies the dilemma and tension. And in our process then, there's also this thing where we call character matters when choosing our leaders. In Exodus 18, verse 21, it's, it's a time when Moses was trying to govern the, this mass of people that he was leading. And he gets the advice from his father-in-law, Jethro, to do this. In verse 21, in Exodus 18, it says, Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And, and this is... Very good, wise counsel. That character does matter. That God find it, finds it even more important than anything else. I, I've heard this, this saying, you know, there's these three P's that mothers tell their daughters not to marry. Don't marry policemen, don't marry pastors, and don't marry politicians. I mean, it's kind of funny, but there is some way, some truth to it. And then if you do polls, if you look at polls about who do we trust in our community, those actually, those three, sadly, because of, of, of broken people, whether policemen, pastors, or, or politicians, their trustworthiness, sadly, is very low in surveys. Uh, we get this a lot. I get this a lot because uh, in conferences, uh, people who are most trustworthy are actually nurses. <laughs> the, the people trust nurses. They trust them more than doctors. And then next level is doctors and et cetera, and healthcare. Those are the most trusted people in our culture and community. The ones in the bottom are lawyers and politicians and, and pastors and, and, and police. Sad. But, but here, if that's the perception of people, it, it, it's an indication of people's character. Trustworthiness, being trusted, is a character issue. And sadly enough, I don't know if you're looking at politicians. Unfortunately, a lot of them are untrustworthy, and, and, and that's something that they have to overcome. And in many ways, many times, I feel that they brought it on on themselves because Jesus was wise in saying that the money changers need to be pushed out of the church, if you're familiar with that story. That there is no profit in being in the church. But politics involves many influencers who are called lobbyists. And, and, and unfortunately, in politics in America, involves money, a lot of money. And when you have lobbyists giving millions of dollars special interest groups giving millions of dollars to candidates, there are strings attached. And politicians need that money to do the things that they feel that are necessary to make the country better. But when there's money involved, there is the evil side of that. And that's a sad thing. According to the scripture here in verse First in, in Timothy 5.22, the reason why character matters 
is not that we can separate it from, that's a bad guy, I'm a good guy. And even though I choose them, I have no responsibility. Well, this was eye-opening when I was doing the study here, that scripture tells us that we are responsible for who we put into leadership. Like today, I was commissioning the Tomakama family to go on a mission field. In some ways, I'm responsible for that. In some ways, I'm vetting them in the name of Jesus Christ to go out there. So whatever they do, I have to kind of, in some ways, I sanctioned it. So I hope and pray that Colin doesn't do anything bad out there. (laughs) But here in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, it says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I read it again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Apparently, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, don't put leaders too quickly into place because when you lay hands on them to commission them, to affirm them, in some ways you are advocating whatever they do. They are your representatives. And if you do, if you do that, then you share in whatever they do. And according to this, if they do something sinful, because you laid hands on them and affirmed them, you share in that same sin. And that's accountability. I mean, that's true accountability according to God, that we don't absentmindedly, we don't do this frivolously, but we truly do the homework, do the vetting, do the background check, whatever. Because there is a spiritual consequence that whoever we put in leadership, we also share in the good and the bad. And that's a scary thought. And so, getting practical, moving to the third area. So how do we choose a president? How do we choose a leader? And it looks like the candidates that are going to be presented before us is going to be someone by the name of Trump and someone by the name of Clinton. And they represent particular parties. And, and if you made a decision, I said earlier, on who you're going to vote, I'm not here to change your mind. I just hope that you made, made the, the decision not just on party affiliation or did it out of tradition or just, just whatever. As long as you did the homework and you, and, and you agree that this is the best choice and you analyzed it according to the, the biblical mandates and also to to what it means to be a good citizen according to God, then God bless you. But if you're in that area where you you can't figure out what to do, and you're believing, and I've heard this, and I don't know if this is the best philosophy, but I've heard this, I'm going to vote for lesser of two evils. You've heard that. I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. And, and, And that's one stance that many are going to go into this election. And, and, and so when I said that there is no party, political party that is Christian, it's because generally it revolves around two issues that are separating our country. And it has been for many years in tradition. The evangelical church, for whatever reason, has aligned itself more on the sanctity of life. And that's essentially the abortion issue. Abortion is part of our country's laws. So to change it will take a massive effort to do that. But it is the law of the land. But as Christians, we know the sanctity of life, right? That it is against God's wishes to abort a life. And, and, and as Christians, we uh, are pained by any time that happens. And so often, Christians float to the... Republican side of the party because that tends to be their issue that they champion. Now, the other biblical mandate I mentioned, not there was one protecting the innocent, including those in the womb. The other biblical mandate is fighting for the rights of the oppressed and the poor. That's social justice. And that tends to be on the other political party, the Democratic Party. So we have this kind of schism here. Right? We have one party representing one biblical mandate. We have another party representing another biblical mandate. We have a tension of trying to figure out which side to be on. 
And that's the dilemma of Christians and, and, is, and supports my, my position that there is no Christian party. And, and you're foolish to think so. And, and in between the two, the candidates that we have aligned with the party are generally going to follow those lines. And, and uh, if it's going to be helpful, and some of you may agree with me or disagree with me, between the two issues, abortion is what it is. And actually, truthfully, whether it's Trump or Clinton, neither of them are going to make any difference in that issue. Because apparent, we all know abortion is the law of the land. And to overturn that, that's going to be very difficult. And, and, and um, so... Whether definitely one particular party is not even going to touch it, and if the other one's going to try to do it, it's 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 impossible. So that's one that's one issue. The second issue to evaluate is then the issue of social justice. So one is the sanctity of life, which party is better, which candidate is better. The other one is then the whole issue of racial justice. And so I know we can't. We're told not to judge people by the cover of the book. But it's sad to, to, to and it, it's kind of alarming that one particular party that, 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 that has a candidate in, in Mr. Trump that says things that, that is pretty incendiary, right? And on the surface, borderlines, if you don't want to call them a racist, pretty close to issues of race and and racism is in my opinion the biggest issue for our culture in our society it was a big issue in the bible 2000 something years ago the gentiles versus the jews i mean the scripture is clear if you put that lens there it is about race we go 2000 years later Race is, is still the same thing as today. And so you got to look at these candidates. Which one is going to help or hurt the issues concerning racism? You know, I have this um, kind of pet peeve with some of the younger generation. Is that even my kids, when we talk about racism and, and race, a lot of them have not, you, you haven't experienced it. I mean, thankfully, things are better. But things aren't. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s in, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. And that was a tumultuous time. That was a civil rights movement. There's, that was a time of anti-war against the Vietnam War. There was demonstrations. Uh, I was the first Chinese-American family to move into our neighborhood, which was not a happy thing for the neighbors. I had friends moving into the Marina District in San Francisco, and they had a particular ethnic group that didn't like that, and they were throwing eggs at their house. This was in the 60s. Being called uh, nasty names, that was commonplace in those days. And that was where uh, the Black Panthers, the whole issue of, of yellow power, the awakening of ethnic studies was coming in the 60s and the 70s. And then in the 70s, I think I have a picture. Uh, nice, clean-cut-looking guys, right? That was me I, I, with my college roommates. Uh, we, we all had long hair. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I bring that up because uh, during the 70s, there, there, there was, this is a post-Vietnam War, so there were people immigrating into the United States from Vietnam. Uh, ethnic Chinese who were being uh, persecuted by the ethnic Vietnamese. And so you had overseas-born Chinese coming into, into the United States, and particularly into San Francisco. And you have American-born Chinese living in, 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 in squalor in Chinatown. Because you know, ghettos are put there because the dominant culture wants us to live there. Ghettos, if you choose, you don't want to live in a ghetto, but the reason there's a ghetto is because the dominant culture doesn't want you to live in the other neighborhoods, as my family experienced. And there are laws against it, but people don't follow laws. When there is racism, it happens. 
And so during that 70s, when you have two particular groups of people who are impoverished, living in, in close quarters, they're going to fight. So in the 70s, if you were living here, if you recall, there was a lot of gang violence happening. There was craziness between American-born Chinese and, and, and overseas-born Chinese. And it, it was so scary. You walked through Chinatown, and in broad daylight, people were shooting each other. The police had never seen this before. Because other gangs would do this in the dead of night, but Asian gangs do it in the middle of the day. And that was scary for them. That's when they had gang tax forces started to form. And during that period, if you were an Asian male, Chinese male, it was, it was not a fun time. And there was one night, my four friends were driving through San Francisco after we were, I guess, juniors at Cal Berkeley, actually. We're returning to San Francisco to take me back to my home. We were going through, and we got stopped by cops uh, on, uh, I'll say, a minor traffic violation. <laughs> I wasn't driving, but we were stopped. And in those days, I mean, we're talking about what happened today, and I will not profess to have any similarities or have the same things that African-American males have. But I'm telling you, if you ever had that kind of experience of being stopped by policemen, and as kids, we were taught by our parents that you are respectful to policemen. You are to call them sir. You do not do anything to upset them. So in the 70s, as I said, there's gang violence. We're looking like that. Everybody looked like that. And we're driving at probably like 3 in the morning through San Francisco, and we get stopped. And we're sitting in their car, and we're educated. We're well-educated. We're Cal Berkeley. We're looking at each other and says, oh, man. Keep your hands on the dash. I mean, we, we automatically stuck our hands. The police didn't even have to tell us. We stuck our hands on the dash and said, don't make any foolish moves and, and just follow exactly what the officer. And, and we knew this was scary. The reason it's scary is there were two cops, at least two, because they shine bright lights so you can't really tell. But we could see that they had shotguns pointed at us. That's not a typical traffic stop, right? Today, if you got stopped by a police, they don't really have shotguns there pointing at you. And they're walking up right behind, and they're aiming those things at us. So if one of them has an accident, uh, itchy finger, we're going to be blown away. And they had also a canine German shepherd barking. So if you ever think of those uh, war movies where you have a big dog barking, guys pointing guns at you, we were sweating bullets there. I mean, that was, it was scary. But fortunately, I mean, maybe it's because of the color of our skin, and maybe this was still in the 70s, racial tension wasn't that high. We, we got off uh, with my friend getting a ticket. But uh, I was in many ways traumatized. I mean, that, that, I don't know how many of you have experienced that, but that is not a fun thing to go through. And it's purely they stopped us because that evening an Asian gang had shot a storekeeper. So the police were already on high alert. So they were stopping anybody who looked suspicious. So just by the color of my skin, and we're just driving around, they stopped us and pointed guns at us. So racism still exists, sadly, in our country. 2,000-something years ago, in the 60s and the 70s, you think it would be better, but it isn't. And there's no evidence more than this past eight years, we have an African-American president. And all that does is that it, it seemed to allow the racism that has been subversed, that has been depressed, to rise. I mean, no matter if you agree or disagree with the policies of our president, the way that our country has reacted to that is shameful. I mean, it is embarrassing that the vitriol, the anger that, that, that is expressed to a, a man who is our president who is an African-American. And I don't know if the world's going to be any better place, but it appears to be on decline. And this is something I want us to consider. In a blog piece that was written by an African-American pastor from Washington, D.C., his name is Tabidi Anyabwili. He gives a quote 
from the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with W.E.B. Du Bois. I guess if you, are, if you were awake during your American history classes, you recognize that name. He, du Bois is an African-American, uh, a civil rights activist, and he's the founder of the AACP. In WCP. And in 1956, he wrote this. I shall not go to the polls. I have not registered. I believe that democracy has so far disappeared in the United States that no two evils exist. There is but one evil party with two names. And it will be elected despite all I can do or say. Pretty profound. This is in 1956. So it's a counter to what I said earlier. Some of you are going to vote the lesser of two evils. But Dubois is presenting another option. Is it okay to vote for the lesser of two evils? And Dubois is making a case that maybe not. Pastor Anya Bouilly elaborates by writing, For Dubois, democracy must entail genuine choice and the proper exercise of voting rights requires actual alternatives. The lesser of two evils was not for him the modus operandi, but a terrible exception. He would view the now commonplace strategy of voting for the lesser evil as a terrible indictment against the entire system. He insisted that voters ought to have a more compelling reason for casting their lot than this guy isn't as bad as the other guy. A vote for the lesser evil is still a vote for evil. I, meaning Pastor Anya Bouilly says, I can't make that vote. I know there are no perfect candidates, but I do, not, I do know there are perfect principles. And neither party or candidate stands for him. And he, he closes by quoting Martin Luther, My conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. So by not voting, it is actually a vote of no confidence. So I present that, that as, as an option, that as Dubois and as Pastor Anya Bouilly is saying, that in good conscience, if they don't hear a clear word from God, they cannot vote for candidates given. So choose how you want to vote using some of the criteria I've given to you. And I kind of want to finish by giving you this, this message of hope. I mean, in the midst of all of these things in the political realm, what do we do? Well, one thing I'm sure of is that we have a God who is in control. That all the issues, all the problems that we have, we can have uh, clever um, solutions for them. But a lot of the issues that, 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 that are a problem for our nation, it's not something that can be separated from a spiritual solution. That the spiritual solution is the only thing that will guarantee overcome many of the issues that we have. And not to recognize that would be foolish. And then er, and earlier we started the time by the reading of Romans 13 in verses 1 through 7. It says there, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. Authorities that exist have been established by God. The scripture tells us that God establishes the governing bodies. And if we know that God is good, then we must trust that he has our good in mind. That whoever is in leadership is under the sovereignty of God. Uh, a, a good uh, a writer, uh, a person who is a great teacher... Uh, some of you have read his books, is, is James Chong. And he said he's part of InterVarsity. And uh, some of us have probably personally met him and know him. He says this, in each generation, there are different values that are primary. And each generation essentially then will look at the world with a different lens. And they will uh, choose their leaders for different things. And he, he states this, and, and I think it's very insightful. He says, 
each generation will look for a different thing uh, related to spirituality. So for those of you who are boomers, you know, born, I guess, in 1963 or prior, prior to that, are boomers, you look for truth, for what is true. And then the generation after that, the busters, their high value is looking for whatever is spiritually real. Then, then the millennials, those are my kids, uh, those you look for whatever is good, what is spiritually good. And then finally, then the young ones, the Generation Z, they look for what is spiritually beautiful. So each generation has a different perspective. And that's what they're going to look for in their lives, whether it's spiritually or, or in the people they're around. They're going to look at what is true, what is uh, for one generation, another one is what is real, what is good for the millennials, and what is beautiful for the youngest. Those four adjectives, what is true, what is real, what is good, what is beautiful. I only know one thing that fits all those four things perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ, who is truth, who is real, who is good, and who is beautiful. And that is the hope that as followers of Jesus Christ we have, not in who is president, not who is pastor of your church, it's Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for our time. I hope that uh, your presence was made known to each person here through the word of God. I pray that you take, uh, help us to be wise and discerning people, that we uh, dig through the chaos and all the noise to hear your silent voice as you direct us in in many areas of our life. And in particular now, as we are in election year, where we get to choose uh, our president, I pray that, as the scripture uh, clearly tells us, that we would choose wisely because we are responsible in some way for who we put into leadership. So give us wisdom, give us discernment. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us mercy and grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.